Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here Thursday, Thursday afternoon, always, for the most part, with John Zipper, uh, my co-host, who is also the vice president of media at the Commonwealth Club and host of his own program, Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk, in which we also air on Fridays on Progressive Voices Network. And so, John, it's always a pleasure to see you. It's good to see you. You know what we're going to be talking about this Monday night on our next Week to Week push show. It's going to have a lot of impeachment talk, so it'll be fun. Oh, yes, yes. I've wanted to get your thoughts. Like, where are we with this all? (laughs) Um, So we'll save that. We'll save that for another talk. Today, though, we have a special guest with us here at the Commonwealth Club and excited to speak with Kyle Casey Chu, who's also known as Panda Dulce, uh, one of the core queens of the Drag Queen Story Hour. And this is a great story. I can't wait to ask her all about it because there had been a lot of headlines lately, um, some controversy around, you know, drag queens and uh, story story hour telling, which, you know, is visiting libraries or, or elementary schools and telling, you know, reading books, like sounds innocent enough, um, but, you know, yet it's controversial. Um, uh, Panda Tulsa also is, is coming out with a new project, Chosen Fam, which is a web series that features relationships and queer trans people of color. Also, Panda's writing has been featured in NPR and talks about, uh, you know, race, um, sexuality, relationships, intersectionality, and all that good stuff. So let's welcome Panda or Kyle, however you want to be known uh, over the air. Whichever. I, I'm good with Kyle. Thanks so much right. for the intro. Right. And I'm so impressed that you remembered all that. I know everything <laughs> about you. Um, I even watched the trailer, which, you know, the tra- yeah. trailer for Chosen Fam. Excited to hear that it, the pilot was shown to a packed, packed house over at El Rio. And so we'll talk all about Chosen Fam in just a little bit. Uh, but before we do all that, it's tradition here on the program that we share a coming out story. So oh my if you goodness. will. Um, so my coming out story is actually threefold because the first time, the first time I came out, I was nine and I was watching Friends and I had a big old crush on Joey Tribbiani, which, you know, 2020, hindsight is 2020 and like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe that. But um, I realized that I had a big old crush on him and that's what it was. And so I started bawling and I was like nine years old. And so my mom comes into the living room and is like, what's going on? Is everything okay? And I said, mom, I think I'm gay. And she goes you're nine years old. You're not gay. And I was like, no, seriously, I am gay. Um, and so she runs into her room and she gets this big old book of parenting or some sort of like impossibly comprehensive encyclopedia on parenting and flips to like the three paragraphs on LGBTQ people and proceeds to read it to me. It takes 20 seconds and it freaks me out even more. Um, the next time was in middle school. And then the time after that, she found my journal. And so that's how she found out about me. Whoa, whoa. I have a lot of questions about that just <laughs> because you're sitting here with us. And so I'm uh, doing a little bit of identification for you, but you appear to be Asian American. Right. Um, so if we were to share background and history, I mean, even myself being born and raised in California, coming out mm-hmm. to my mom, a Southeast Asian refugee woman, it has been uh, super difficult. In fact, you know, it took many, many, many years for her to accept it. And she's still kind of doing her homework to be, uh, you know, as inclusive as possible. 
just to hear your mom being so supportive and almost, um, you know, second, third, maybe generation Asian American. Uh, talk to us about you, the, uh, the 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 acceptance and maybe perhaps you know how your family background and LGBTQ may have been different from my story. Absolutely. Well, I think overall I'm incredibly fortunate uh, to have had my parents as sources of support growing up. Um, my mom is third generation, and my dad is actually from London, and they both have a lot of queer fam friends. Um, and so growing up, I had queer babysitters. I had a lot of queer influences in my life uh, that were indelible for my development. Um, with that said, everyone has their curve. Uh, I have a twin brother with autism. And so at two, we found out that he was autistic. And so my mom kind of had to restructure the way she thought of her sons and uh, what they were capable of doing, who they would turn out to be. And so I feel like in a way that served as kind of a primer for her being able to accept me for being different as well. And so early on, she was advocating for my brother to be included in classrooms in SFUSD. He was mm -hmm. one of the first uh, kids with autism to be included in SFUSD classrooms as mm -hmm. opposed to segregated special ed. Um, and by the time I had come out, she was like, might as well. <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole bunch of misfits. We might as well do this. Um, and so it was difficult for her to swallow at first because she had kind of envisioned my continuing the family in a very specific way, mm -hmm. uh, but has definitely grown into it, and my father as well. So I'm very blessed for that. And we were talking before the program, your family has been in San Francisco for four generations? Yes, uh, San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, so my grandpa was born and raised in Oakland, Chinatown, and my mom is from here. Wow. wow. Yeah. So your family has seen this place change a lot. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And even myself, like all of the, a lot of the haunts I went to in high school have since drastically changed. Mm -hmm. Neighborhoods have gone complete makeovers, et cetera. Um, yeah. So the uh, the birth of Panda Dulce, I think this is going to be also an interesting story to hear just because um, you, you know, there probably had been many inspirations behind Panda Dulce, you know, with various historical drag queens and also current ones. Um, yeah. How did, how did Panda become Panda? Sure. Um, so I think I've been, I've been doing what, uh, people in the scene called booger drag for a long time. What? <laughs> yeah. Which is like kind of a cross term for people who just throw on some lipstick and a wig and are like, I'm a queen now. <laughs> Look at me. Um, and so, I grew up in the SF DIY music scene here in SF. And so uh, I dressed in drag and played music with bands growing up, but in a very booger sense, I guess. And it wasn't until grad school in New York when I realized I needed an outlet at least once a week for something creative, something that's entirely me and has nothing to do with my studies. And so um, at the time I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race and said, you know what, I'm going to go get some makeup and I'm going to do this. Uh, and so that's how it started. And then... While I was working in San Francisco, I met my drag mother, Estee Longa, of the Rice Rockettes, which is an all-Asian drag family. Um, and she kind of took me under her wing, taught me the ropes, taught me how to contour, uh, how to put on a corset. Yikes. <laughs> um, and three years later, here I am. Wow. Um, John, you want to jump in? Well, I, I think there's a lot of time we could spend on this, actually. I mean, did panda evolve over that time or did you know kind of at the beginning this is how i want her to look this is how these are, this is how she's going to act that's a great question i feel like i feel like a lot of 
queens jump into it knowing with like a very specific vision and a very specific genre and feel and know exactly what they're looking for. For me, I had to do a lot of exploring. I feel like I was exposed to a lot of world-class queens on RuPaul's Drag Race who were dark, who were funny, who were theatrical. Um, and I liked all of it. And I really didn't know what direction to go. And so for a while, I was doing some dark acts. I was doing some political acts. I was doing some like quirky 50s housewife looks. Mm -hmm. And I think after Drag Queen Story Hour, I kind of settled on this persona that I'm like a cheerleader who has discovered Wicca. <laughs> so I'm like a little ditzy, but also have evil intentions. But I'm also like a kid-friendly villain because I interact with kids a lot. So yeah. I don't know. So I want to talk <laughs> about that, the, uh, the the Drag Queen Story Hour. and sure. Because I think like, you know, as history has taught us with with drag queens and in, mm. in being entertainers um actually activists first mm. but using entertainment and as this form of uh, the freedom of expression right to the 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 opportunity to express ourselves and then call attention to the issues that impact us but to go into this world of being a drag queen and um, into, you know, school spaces. Mm -hmm. It's something new and, and not scary, maybe, but definitely new. I would say scary to people that don't know LGBTQ sure. people because mm -hmm. that's why I mentioned that it was controversial. So mm -hmm. how did it happen? I'm, I'm curious to know how it became a thing where it's like, you know what, we're going to go into classrooms or libraries and we're going to tell we're going to read stories to little kids in drag. Right. Absolutely. So, um. Michelle T, the renowned writer, mm -hmm. who uh, actually taught creative writing in my high school, come to think of it, um, she had a kid and realized that there was a dearth of spaces for queer families and queer children where they could gather in like a very wholesome way, and mm -hmm. i.e. like not a bar. Um, and so she had this novel idea to bring drag queens into education spaces and to libraries, and why not, right? Um, and I think it's actually brilliant one and two it turns so much on his head in terms of how we think about queer culture and how drag queens interact with people because historically drag queens have been ref um, confined to the bar space and thinking about how lgbtq spaces formed historically like that was the only place where we could feel safe like speciously right so like before the raids and stonewall like these were where we congregated these were where we met um and I think because there's been so much concern and there still is like substantial concern around safety and being queer in general, um, we haven't had the ability to necessarily expand beyond that in a way that feels safe and sustainable. Right. But things are changing, fortunately. And so as we're forming queer families, it, we come to think like, well, what culture is there for people who are younger, for people who aren't yet of drinking age? Um, what do safe spaces look like for them? And so I think it's great that we're bringing drag queens into these spaces, not only because it exposes people on the queer and trans spectrum to who they might become, um, for better or for worse, if you're like a drag queen like me, <laughs> but, um, but also, I don't know, it's just, it's just like the look on the, the queer kids' faces, because you can kind of tell which ones are, and I don't know, but they just light up 
and they see themselves reflected in this way that you you know they haven't felt before. And I had this one kid come to me during a reading at an elementary school and was like, do you have Google Docs? Can I share a Google Doc with you? Can we like keep in constant contact? And I was like, yes, Ashley. And in my eyes, I was just like, it's going to be okay, girl. It's going to be okay. <laughs> like, you can find more like us. Don't worry. But yeah, I'd say that's invaluable. When I first heard about it, I... I thought of actually something your your old boyfriend, uh, Joey Tribbiani, uh, <laughs> experienced, which was, you remember the episode where Phoebe went to sing songs in the local public school to the little kids? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, of course, Phoebe, the character, for those people who are listening who don't know the show, she was wacky, mm-hmm. strange, kooky, and, of course, adorable. And she's singing these songs about, you know life and death and you know your relatives dying and you know some people are gay some people are straight some people are bi and blah 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 and of course the library you know gently asks her not either sing about animals (laughs) which she then sings about you know animals going to the slaughterhouse (laughs) or sing about you know sing about happy stuff well she wouldn't do that she wouldn't compromise her art and so she goes back to central perk the coffee house where they all hang out the kids find her and this is why i'm bringing all this up and they're like oh there's the lady who sings truth <laughs> and so they loved it i mean it, it seems you're connecting with those kids and kind of it's a long roundabout way of getting here but i mean kind of the same way i mean here you are in a different persona an outrageous difference in a way from what they would expect but i think they're actually seeing something very real in it Sure. You know, the kid who's who's saying, hey, I want to be connected with you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's not I want your autograph. That is, I, you know, there's something real here. Totally. There must be you must get some such great satisfaction from that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every day. Well, OK, before I even launch into that, can I just say I am so honored and touched that you just conferred, compared me to Phoebe Buffay. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. I need to put that like in quotes on a, my website or something. Well, Anyways. when you walked in the room, I was like, Phoebe, oh, oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's right. You made my life. <laughs> um, yeah, connecting with the kids is really something else. And it's also funny because I think to them, depending on what age they are and like what whatever like development they're at, we just appear to be like these wacky cartoon characters because yeah. it's just like such an overstimulation, like... It's just like we're just all glitter and big wigs and perfume and like an ukulele and we're playing songs for them and they just don't know what to do with it. And so they're either like so excited or so overwhelmed that they're kind of reclaimed. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's it's been helpful for me because I have a background in education and social work. And so for a long time, like much thanks to my brother for volunteering in Special Olympics for him, et cetera. But I've worked in the classroom where... um, I interacted with kids and struggled with whether or not I should bring my queer identity to the classroom. And I, I feel like it was kind of difficult because I didn't want to, uh, I don't know, be heavy handed about it. But at the same time, I didn't want to risk my own authenticity and like kind of bar them from that. And this is kind of a great way for me to integrate that and for me not to necessarily feel this divide, but to f- bring myself fully. Hmm. So it's been healing in that way. I, I don't I, know which direction you wanted to go in. I, with, I but, wanted to address. I mean, I just wanted to. Well, I, I wanted to. Yeah, I mean, have, have you personally had any parents or teachers or librarians or anything ask you to do something differently, or have you, you know, have you gotten any of the negative feedback, or is this just kind of happening out in the Twitterverse where people will just get outraged about stupid stuff? Right. I think it's more the latter, and partially due to the fact that we're in the Bay Area. Um, 
fortunately, like a lot of people who attend the events are just really excited that that's there. Yeah. Um, which is, which, I mean, on the other hand, too, there's been picket lines at events that we've had. Uh, yeah, which have been interesting to interact with. Uh, but I don't, I've never been in a situation where I felt unsafe. Yeah. And so I feel like very grateful to the queens out there in other cities that aren't, might not be as hospitable who are brave enough to continue this programming there. Hmm. Well, you know, on a different note and kind of driving it back to all the uh, projects that you've been a part of and you're launching, yeah. um, Chosen Fam, a web series, and this need for more representation of queer trans people of color uh, and, and our authentic you know, stories and us being able to share our own stories. As much progress as we've made since, you know, the liberation movement in the LGBTQ community, it always, it always almost feels as if, like, in 2019, you know, it's still not enough liberation and visibility, especially for queer trans, you know, people of color. Um, so when you're putting yourself out there as a uh, an, an, an Asian drag queen, mm-hmm. for example, and one, you know, who's been in San Francisco, Bay Area, um, for four his, his family or your family for four generations. Uh, I wonder kind of how the Asian community, um, has, has really either accepted or has made sense of, you know, the way that you put yourself out there either as a drag queen or telling a story at elementary schools or libraries or doing drag queen shows out there as an entertainer. And then now, you know, a web series, which, looks as if we might be bearing it all um, in our relationships and how different we are from, or not different, you know, from the rest of of society. Right. Um, I mean, again, I would say that we have like a pretty substantial Asian American population here um, who I'm fortunate to be in community with. Uh, I feel like through my work with the Rice Rockettes, which is the all Asian drag family I was talking about, um, I've been connected to a lot of queer Asians who have, been tickled by the idea of Drag Queen Story Hour, who have been excited by Chosen Fam, the project, um, and who come together and commune a lot. Uh, I've done some work with Hyphen Magazine and the Gay Asian Pacific American Foundation, uh, GAPA, and I mean, Gay Asian Pacific Alliance, sorry, I always get that mixed up. Um, And so I feel like through their programming, I've just gotten to meet a lot of nonprofits who have really great messaging, great mis- great missions, and also just convene really regularly. Yeah, that's wonderful. I bring that up just because here at the the club, we hit our own you know controversial moment um, in wanting to speak mm. to a person who's running for office, and through you know, and, and po- politics is scandalous and dramatic anyway. And who knows, it's probably whatever comes out of it is worse than, uh, gossip columns or something. I just feel like everybody's always fighting and saying this and that, but apparently through this person's, you know, uh, chats in, in their apps, like WeChat or something like that, um, their Chinese was translated into something that appeared transphobic mm-hmm. And there was a bigger discussion that was had to address transphobia and homophobia in the LGBTQ community and how uh, we also even have to remind our LGBTQ peers who are not Asian or, you know, who speak other languages that 
you, the, these are some of the we have to do our own education in the mm-hmm. Asian American community. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in um, hearing your perspective. I mean, that was that was somebody, an individual who is running for office, which you shouldn't be in any chats <laughs> electronically, I guess. I don't know if people look through your stuff. Um, and, and to be careful about what you say is you're going to be a politician. But when you're a drag queen, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there and, are and no rules. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I, I think that there are more opportunities when people relax themselves a little bit and they're not looking to you to become like a target of some political agenda. So first of all, like the visuals there, um, uh, we we have drag queens who also are representations of our culture, and then when that when that person you know freely expresses themselves through their art and shares like the, you know I've 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 dated this person or this person is my partner or these are my politics or I care about these issues that impact LGBTQ. I feel like there's more room for folks who may not fully understand LGBTQ in the Asian American community to to cross over and say, you know, thanks for educating me or, or thanks for being out there. Um, so I wanted to just kind of hear if you had those types of experiences. Is it ever different when you're Kyle Casey Chu or Panda Dulce and what your own personal experiences are when you're representing your community and Actually, I should say communities. That's that's basically what I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah, um, that's a really good question and very layered. I feel like one, on the one hand, like, thank goodness I'm not a politician, but <laughs> I feel like drag kind of affords you very like this like sprawling freedom to do whatever you want because ultimately it's about performance and absurdism. And, like, in terms of, like, the queer theory of it all, it's, like, supposed to draw attention to, like, the performance inherent in everything. Like, how when we are assigned male at birth, we are not inherently more masculine, but these are, like, behaviors that we learn. And so through performance, like, of appearing very feminine through makeup and mannerisms and whatever you happen to be singing, like, you can draw attention to how quickly you can become a 50s housewife or a cheerleader who discovers Wicca, right? Um, and I think there's, I think on the one hand, there can be lower stakes because a lot of people see it as like a lowbrow art in which sense you can like say whatever you want about a given issue and, um, and kind of infuse humor in it or Mm -hmm. force people to kind of analyze and reconsider how they're thinking of things. And on the other hand, something that I've been kind of contending with for a while is I would say that. I've been involved in organizing communities and communities who care deeply about social justice. And I'm not sure if like you've read things about call out culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Ooh, I want to do an entire program on call totally. out culture. So like call out culture is this idea that um, much like the me too scandals, for example, um, drawing attention to how people have failed and they're being allies or have harmed other people and, trying to stage a sort of accountability process and it's such a messy issue because on the one hand yes like these people definitely need to be held accountable yes um something needs to happen and the victims need to be heard and on the same hand it's like where does it end like how do we how do we regulate this and also when people point when people i don't know how to phrase this it's like when people pass blame on other people it also 
positions them as an authority on the issue, in which case they have to like kind of sit perfectly and not mess up at all. And this is not just in relation to Me Too stuff, but like in my local music scene, there was an instance where there was a person who was exposed as having assaulted a lot of people. Mm. And so it created this really hostile environment where everyone was like, well, this guy did it too. And this person did it too. And we need to do this and we need to do this. And there are just so many voices contending with like how, how one's held accountable, who is responsible for doing the calling out, who's responsible for like instituting a system for making this better. Right. And I feel like in that sort of environment, it's hard to say anything and it's hard to be vulnerable because nobody wants to be at the other end of that pointing finger. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I don't really have a solution for it. That is neat because it's not a neat issue, right? Mm -hmm. But there is room for exploration and for questioning things. And on the other hand, there's room for people to be very closed off and for productive conversations not to take place because everyone's fearful. That wow, yeah, you're right. That that is a very important discussion and and one we could go into for a long time. Um, and my thinking, watching a lot of it happen in mm-hmm. various different circumstances, is that you know the, the idea of people putting themselves in the role of the prosecutor. Right. It's like that can be very important. And boy, I mean, to watch some of the big folks who have fallen, right, um, who twenty years ago never would have, mm-hmm. um, is for the most part, gratifying, but also to see prosecutors and the whole system kind of get ginned up where there's no forgiveness, right? No mercy, no grace. Right. And not to get religious, but I mean, you know, a lot of folks kind of go by the old there, but for the grace of God, go I or whatever. You know I mean? It's like, I don't want to put myself in the shoes of, you know, someone who's assaulting people, but someone who's offended someone, someone who has, you know, done something that is not, you know, doesn't satisfy a fundamentalist of whatever, you know, is type someone might be a fundamentalist of. And, you know, there's, there does, I think need to be some more disunderstanding that this person we were talking about that who we interviewed and we finally just did them as a separate one-off interview because, we just wanted to hear, okay, what was her understanding of what she was mm-hmm. saying when she did those texts mm-hmm. of what is her actual understanding about mm-hmm. transgender folks? How have her views changed or not? You know, I mean, it's like at some point to be seeing people as real people, as right. human beings, mm-hmm. um, it, it means also that the prosecutors have to get off their hmm. soapbox or their sure, high horse sure. or whatever cliche you want to use. Yeah. It's like, how, yeah. Do you, how do you negotiate the fact that we are human beings who are deeply flawed and continuously learning, continuously messing up um, with the fact that you might be fed up of correcting these things with um, microaggressions, with mm. this behavior, right? Well, and I, I, I wanted to hear your perspective because also, you know, for me, there are times when um, being Asian American separates itself from being LGBTQ because culturally, you know, sometimes in some spaces it can't be the same or I've got to act or, or think differently or speak differently. That's happened to me before. Um, and at the same time, like I can't necessarily afford to cancel, you know, individuals in my own family who need the education, uh, and to try to, figure out a way to educate and inform folks that you can be, and you are, 
you know, LGBTQ and other. Mm -hmm. Um, so that seems to be like experiences that I think we still need to also educate members of our own community on that when you serve a a purpose of representing more than one community and Mm -hmm. those identities are marginalized or, you know, uh, uh, oppressed communities, then you're further marginalized from the rest Mm -hmm. and that you can't really afford to, to cancel everyone or say, right. I'm walking away from this. And, right. and, and then um, that brings up the bigger reason why I asked this, because those are also experiences in which then when you feel fed up or you feel like you just don't have a solution to a lot of the differences in your identities and your communities that you represent, you will find individuals that become your chosen family oh hey that transition <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. high five yeah i'm only able Lovely. to do this because um <laughs> we have such a wonderful audience today and uh, i feel confident yeah thanks so um, much, justin yeah and so that that was the reason why because i i oftentimes did find myself you know um uh, uh, what's it called? Attracted or or safe, feeling safe around other other folks that I would consider family nowadays, because I oftentimes felt misunderstood, and and it goes both ways in mm-hmm. in many of the identities that I that I have. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would say so too. I think. Like I went, I went to a small liberal arts school in New York, and it was predominantly white and affluent. And I feel like out of that environment, it was also like a very cold social climate, which I wasn't used to as like a sunny Californian. Um, and so I feel like a lot of the students of color on campus started to organize and meet together and hang out with each other. And it was this like insular sort of environment, and it was kind of like a survival tactic for us. And I feel like. St- being on this campus with very few people studying race very deeply, like it, it created this sort of dynamic in my head where I felt like it was hostile and like I had to be with my people at all times. And I feel like a lot of college students might feel that way when they're studying those things like that intensely. And so I kind of came out of that being like, I kind of want to stick very close to my communities of color with my LGBTQ communities, et cetera. Um, And it was very absolute and very black and white and dogmatic. And as an adult and like as the more communities I become involved with, the more projects I realize that things are not that simple and nothing is that simple. And that there are people, there are queer people of color who are mean and there are allies and people who are not people of color or LGBTQ who I love dearly and appreciate and value. And so it's taken some time to kind of unlearn a mindset that I created in a very specific environment and not generalize that to everyone else. Um, with that said, like, I think I, I, I was kind of struggling with whether or not to define Chosen Fam, the web series, as a QTPOC show, QTPOC standing for queer and trans people mm-hmm. of color, because I feel like it it kind of summons like a very specific experience. And like when a lot of people use it, it's very like, it's in like very radical communities, very like kind of militant communities, which are things I still believe in. And in some ways are exclusive to the point that I don't agree with. Um, That kind of contradicts what I just said about there being exceptions to every rule. Um, And so I want to say about it that it's not meant to alienate and it's not meant to, 
compartmentalize communities, but it's more so just to like bring shed light on some stories that we have not seen before. Let, then let's let's get more into that specifically. Um, how did this come about? How and you and I were talking before the program again about um, all of this that you're taking on, all the different roles you're doing right, on right, this right. show. So why jump into such a big thing? Because this must have been with all the different hats you were wearing. I mean, this was a, a huge commitment. Totally. <laughs> um, so I guess I've always had a lot of different interests. Like I'm a drag queen. I write. I do music, etc. <laughs> um, I'm just this octopus. And uh, and so after college, I went to the Center for Asian American Media, and I started an internship with their film festival. Mm-hmm. It's the largest Asian and Asian American film festival in the world. It's called CAMFest, or formerly known as San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival. I'm glad they changed it. It's such a mouthful. <laughs> um, and so I met my friend Donna there, uh, who was a screenwriter. And so while we were there, we were dreaming up all of these ideas uh, for films that we can make together. Mm-hmm. And before we even knew we wanted to do Chosen Fam, we knew that we wanted to create stories that reflected our diverse perspectives as queer Asian Americans, as female Asian Americans, as people of color. And when I think about why that is, I think back to growing up and being at home and watching a lot of movies. And I've said this at the premiere party before, but it just like makes so much sense to me. Have you all seen the movie Three Ninjas? Okay, nope. it's it's a terrible okay, yeah, Justin has. It's a terrible movie. It's about these three suburban white kids who have an Asian grandpa somehow, it's never explained, who teaches them martial arts and they go and like fight all these bad dudes, right? As one does, yes. Yeah, as one does. Um nineties, what a time to be alive, right? <laughs> uh and so growing up I saw that and I was like, Oh my god, that's me. Like I have an Asian grandpa too, like that's who I am. Get it? And so I went to my actual grandpa and I was like Grandpa, can you please teach me martial arts? (laughs) Like, I am ready. I am the fourth ninja. Hello. Oh, my goodness. And my grandpa is like a no-nonsense World War II veteran who went to Harvard grad school, like business school. (laughs) And he was literally just like, Kyle, you're dumb. Like, go play. Like, I'm not having any of this. And like, and this seems so innocent, right? It's like I was just some eight-year-old kid who saw a movie and got some misinformation. But the older I grew, the more I realized that there were messages everywhere that were telling me that being Asian American was unacceptable or not human or less American or less than in general. These ideas and these motifs and these images followed me in Halloween when I wanted to be the Red Ranger and another kid told me, no, you have to be the Yellow Ranger. Or when I went to middle school and Bobby Lee from Mad TV, who does these Asian characters, like everyone called me Bobby Lee and they said hot dog, hot dog at me because it was like a Bobby Lee joke he did, right? It followed me when I dated guys and they assumed that I would be passive and would do whatever they wanted, right? And so it almost felt as if, like, no matter what I wanted to do, no matter who I wanted to be, all of these things had already been decided for me. And I had no word in that. And it felt incredibly disempowering. And so I guess because I didn't see myself reflected accurately anywhere, I didn't feel like I deserved to be reflected at all. And so... I started hating being Asian and I started hating myself for being Asian. I would kick other people's rolly backpacks at school, like other Asian students. I would tell Ching Chong jokes and tell them to go back to China. When I was eating Chinese food with my parents, I would tell my parents I was, I would tell my friends I was eating pizza because I didn't want them to think that I was that Asian. And I relished when I would ask my white friends, like, I'm not that Asian, right? And I would 
really be reaffirmed and reassured when they said, you're not that Asian, you're practically white, right? And it made me feel like a monster. I felt like a monster. And there's this Juno Diaz quote that I always return to because it just so aptly just nails it on the head. I know he's an embroiled figure, but he says, it's about monsters. And he says, y'all know about vampires. There's this idea that vampires don't have reflections in the mirror. And what I've always thought isn't that vampires don't have reflections in the mirror. It's that if you want to turn someone into a monster, deprive them of any reflection of themselves at the cultural level. Mm. And that is exactly what I felt. Um, And so with this feeling, I felt like a freak for most of my life, I guess. And it wasn't until I found the San Francisco music scene that I felt less like a freak or that there were other freaks out there like me yeah. <laughs> who, who cared about representation in the same way, who had also felt alienated culturally. And I wanted to bring their stories to light so that in hopes that if these stories are out there, people like us and perhaps the hurt little kids within us can not feel so monstrous for being exactly who they're supposed to be. That's awesome. I, I, this will be an aside, but I have a colleague here at the Commonwealth Club who's Filipino-American, and her father and her grandfather are both, I, look, I believe the grandfather's passed away, but they're both like master-level originators of some Filipino martial arts. You can find videos of them online where they're like, you know, the great, the great ones. Um, so if you still want to learn, you know, <laughs> the talk stands. to Joanne downstairs. <laughs> um, oh, Joanne, yeah. Okay, see, so you wanted to do this, why in a video series? Why not through your writing or, or something else? Or in addition to that? Because I realized I myself and a lot of my friends spend so much time consuming media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think it's become such a cultural pillar at this point where it's like, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, Netflix, you know, like... Um, I just think that media has an impact on us in ways that other arts don't like, and you know, like when I was a kid and I saw that and I just, it was just reality for me. It was just, you were watching other people do it. Therefore it existed and was real and compelling. Well, just to add, I mean, because I'll be one of your fans uh, waiting for episode one, two, three, four, uh, however many episodes are in the series. Uh, We don't know how many, five, five. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, to see Asians on screen and you know, do things like even as basic as like kiss someone. Right. I mean, we kiss. It's just culturally, I think we're like, I mean, at least in my household, you're taught to to not show those things or mm. not, you know, be open about those types of emotions or those actions. So to see it and be like, yeah, I do do those things. And <laughs> I shouldn't feel ashamed about it. Yes. Should be great. But um, go back to the music scene. Cause the San Francisco music scene, uh, I mean, you know, for if people are reading about San Francisco these days, they're either talking about the homelessness crisis and the right. boulders that the residents had paid to put onto their sidewalks to right. deter um, uh, uh, camps, or they're talking about uh, the uh, uh, Warriors and the Chase Center. But the music scene, it, there there has always been a music scene in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so how's Grace Slick? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the scene is 
I mean, had always been thriving when I was in high school. It, I don't know how to describe it other than just through this art. <laughs> was it like indie or is it? Yeah, it was, it was indie, do it yourself. So there were zines galore. There were tattoos. There were many a mission burrito late at night. And is the music scene like racially integrated and culturally integrated or are, you know, does he, is that kind of separated by different groups? That's a great question. I think that's a complicated question because when I was in high school, the scene I was a part of was predominantly white and straight. Um, and I think there were other activities going on with like communities of color. I just like wasn't plugged into that. And so some of the first bands I were in were with predominantly straight white guys. And I remember in high school, like right after I graduated high school, we went on a U.S. tour and it was the first time that I was in like a smelly van with like a bunch of straight white dudes like, <laughs> and none of my friends. And I realized like how critical it was to my survival to be around women and queer people and people of color. And so I remember when we went to Long Beach, I found these two other punks, Kathy and Michelle, and they were both um, Asian women. And I just gravitated to them and I was like, oh my God, hi. Like, <laughs> can we talk about anything else? Like, oh my God. Um, and so I think... I think as an adult, like I had increased access to that just by virtue of not being a minor and also mm -hmm. like the internet and finding things that way. Uh, but I was able to find these scenes that were very focused on queer and trans people of color. And like there was the Think and Die Thinking Collective in San Jose who started a festival for queer and trans people of color and women in POCs. And so I was plugged into that. And I think that was just a way to like totally reaffirm my identity as my young self. And it's just given me so many tools to be able to be critical of the world around me and to articulate myself in a creative way. And there's just some really awesome people in that scene. So is that the moment in which you finally felt, I guess, safe um, and more accepting of yourself coming, you know, you were earlier, you were talking about being even anti-Asian right, and, right. and hating yourself in, in, in that way, um, to being a part of the queer trans people of color, indie music scene and being, you know, pretty much the voices that were pri are prioritized are mm -hmm. people of color. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of where I had my aha moment and felt really at home. Um, and it was kind of, wanting to hold on to that feeling and memorialize or honor that in this mm -hmm. web series that that's how it came about for me. So what do you do to Asian folks with the rolling bags today? Versus what you did to them before. <laughs> and, and <laughs> the white guy question, what you did, what was the rolling bags? I don't know what that. Oh, like rolling backpacks. Like it's just a backpack that's, um, that has the extended handle that, in the hallway and people is would that kick it. Particularly assumed to be Asian. I don't It's like assumed to be nerdy. Okay. There's too much that you carry. Too many books that you carry. You can't even have, you can't even carry a regular backpack. Right. You're that studious. You gotta have a rolling backpack. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't see a lot of rolling backpacks these days. <laughs> yeah, which is great. But um yeah, I think going to school and like reading a lot about history and reading a lot about like racial theory, I was just like, wow. I had internalized some stuff and mm. I need to work through that. Mm. Um, and so working through that, also being away from my parents for a while and realizing that I missed them and wasn't just this like moody, rambunctious teenager who just hated them. And that was just a phase that all helped. Wow. I'm like really getting into it. 
Um, If we can go back to the part where you said, you know, how uh, you were describing how Chosen Fam, the web series, came to be, and you talked about even sometimes being part of the queer, trans, people of color community might be stereotyped as militant and or super Mm -hmm. radical. Right. Um, Yeah, you know, to generalize anything is just you shouldn't do that. It's bad practice. Mm -hmm. However, I do share experiences of feeling that way, and it can be very isolating. And I don't want to be isolated from my own community. But if you could share for, you know, uh, how to navigate maybe feeling isolated from that. Because maybe I'm a little too old to be a part of the militant, radical, mm-hmm. uh, young, queer, people of color movement. Right. 30, am I 37? I am 37. You are, Granny. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, even, I don't even understand Twitter. So, I don't understand Twitter either. I do understand <laughs> the need rumble. to be incredibly you know, radical, especially during this, this administration as we're rolling back and into a crazy time that doesn't even make sense. You read about some of this uh, white nationalism and supremacy in the textbook uh, for at least, you know, my, my generation. Um, You thought, at at least I thought that, you know, the KKKs were all dismantled and done and gone. And then it's like, poof, 2017, 2018. No, they were still there. They just walk around in dark or just khakis um, (laughs) or something like that. Anyway, so I kind of want to address that. I really like to understand, even from um, somebody younger perspective, how do you navigate that without isolating your own community? How do you be a part of the radical, militant, very intelligent young folks of our movement, but be able to agree and disagree at the same time? I feel like that the last part of what you said, but be able to disagree, agree and disagree at the same time is what complicates this question (laughs) so much because it's like this movement is like something that I have believed in and felt very dogmatic about for a very long time. And for me, it's not sustainable because it means being angry all the time. Mm -hmm. And it means always consuming media, always being critical always putting so much of yourself out there in a way that is just so exhausting. And this is also to say that like some people don't have a choice and some people who so deeply feel this way, like are always on in that way. And it's bad for you. It's like cortisol. It's like, it just tires you out. And so I feel like being able to negotiate that with taking care of yourself, taking breaks when you need to. And for example, like just, down to like the micro thing of like watching a movie and seeing a problematic representation or like joke or a racist thing and like not getting all up in arms about it. Like I don't have a clean answer for it. No. And and I didn't didn't intend you to, I think for me it was probably uh, healing and cathartic in some way to even just talk to somebody who might understand what I'm trying to articulate. Well, just um, last Friday, we had Session a little further mm. on stage, and she was the Apache actress, young Apache actress who, in 1973, rejected the Oscar that was being given for uh, what's his face, Marlon Brando. Thank you. Mm. Um, and you know, famous, famous thing. Well, she under—I mean, it basically ended her career in Hollywood. You know, and and she was getting a lot of abuse from mm. 
John Wayne and other stupid actors. Um, and it's interesting to talk to her now, you know, what is it, 40-something years later. Mm. And, you know, she still very much holds to her beliefs yeah. and, and all that. And yet she has such a neat, gentle sense of humor about things. Mm. And, oh, yeah. And she really, I mean, she's thrilled. She was on stage with, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Sivan Alira Rose. Alira. Alira Rose, yeah. who's a young Apache actress now who had, had been the star of the Netflix series Chambers. And so she was saying, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that, you know, now today you can have a series that actually not only stars a young Native American, but tells her story as a Native American. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it's not she's playing the, you know, Pocahontas character or something mm-hmm. like that. But it, I guess the thing that I was really taking away from what Sashin was saying was just all those all the stuff that she's gone through and all the things she put her life into addressing was she found outlets for it. Mm-hmm. You know, even in a society that in so many ways hated her mm-hmm. or so much of it hated her. Mm-hmm. Um, yet she still found ways to work with mother Teresa to start an AIDS foundation for native Americans in San Francisco. I mean, there are, it, it seems to be both what was inside her driving her as well as being in this bizarre city that has opportunities for someone who really wants to put their heart into things. And I mean, it kind of touches back to what we were talking about earlier about the fact that you took on this big project to mm-hmm. tell stories and, and, yep. and, uh, you know, you did not have to do that. You, you could have gone on doing other stuff that you were doing or found something else completely different to do. Sure. But media is a way, a great way of reaching people who both are, your community and, and, and maybe share your experiences as well as people who don't. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to get into that. Cause we were chatting a bit earlier about that, mm-hmm. about how, you know, back when Sashin Littlefeather was, was doing that, there were three big networks and PBS mm-hmm. and, you know, your television show, if you had a TV show had to reach 30 or 40 million people or mm-hmm. they'd, they'd cancel it. We now have all of these different ways of reaching both smaller audiences, but also that, broader audiences can find stuff that they might not, you know, that wasn't prepackaged and sanitized to, for the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. So it's a really long roundabout way of getting to, um, who do you hope to reach in this? Mm -hmm. Both, uh, you know, people who, who might recognize themselves in those stories, but also what would you hope maybe people who come across it, who it's not about them, but they're seeing it and, 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 you know, that audience, what do you hope that they will get out of? I think I want this project to be about like universalized humanity. And I think a lot of people who are not within the scene that we're, we've been discussing, who hear the pitch about the project, their first reaction is like, oh, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. But it does. <laughs> These are all like very universal issues. Like we're talking about like parenting and adoption, about moving back in with your mom when you're trying to have a sex life. Like, <laughs> about yeah tell us more <laughs> keep going whatever um, like um terrible devastating early 20s first relationship ever breakups that are like earth shattering um going for a position at your firm when you're the first woman to do so like i think you know it's really easy to sectionalize this and to say that it only pertains to a niche audience but it doesn't um and i think the other thing too which we were kind of getting to with uh talking about like joining the QTPOC movement but not feeling isolated is like, I think a lot of people see, they, they want to see such significant change that 
the message of their art sometimes overpowers the art. And so, you know, it can easily feel very heavy handed to somebody who's not familiar with the issues or like very like a sententional, no, that's not a word, (laughs) Uh, very like didactic, right? And I want to show people who are messy and who don't have their stuff together and who are making mistakes and who are not perfect and who can be called out because that is what life is. And it's not so neatly packaged. It's messy and dirty, you know? I, I do. Yes. Yes. I can't wait for the, uh, the episode one, two, three, four, and five. And w- what we need to do is be able to tell people how they can make that happen though. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. You're in the middle of trying to raise the funds to do it. So there is a, a, a crowd, uh, What's it called now, DC? I'm the worst wannabe young person ever. You're crowdfunding. crowdfunding. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where you can participate online. Um, so this is a talkie, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're raising, you need to raise $25,000. Yes. Um, we need to raise at least 20K um, to see a cent of the proceeds. And so we're about seven, we're at about 7,000 now. Uh, our campaign ends on October 12th, and you can donate at www.seedandspark.com slash fund slash chosen fam series. Repeat that again, please. www.seedandspark.com slash fund slash chosen fam series. Now, in the voice of uh, Donald Trump, um, on stage. W- w- <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to repel people. I want to. <laughs> good point. Good point. dot. I saw the trailer. I think on your website is the trailer also on that page. And if not, yes. We're, okay. Good. So people can go there. They can see the trailer. Absolutely. And there's all this information too at chosenfam.com, which is probably a lot easier to yep, remember. Indeed. Yeah, chosenfam.com. Last question for you, and thank you so much for taking time out of work to be here with us this afternoon, this beautiful afternoon. It's finally cooled down here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's been really fun to read everybody's complaints online on social (laughs) media about how hot it is, and it's like, have you been to Arizona? Apparently not. The city goes wild, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is is basically, what was my last question? (laughs) I forgot because I started thinking about the heat. no, okay. Uh, you asked what what do you want people to get out of it? Um, what happens? Well, we are going to reach twenty five thousand dollars. Yes, we are. Yes. And it, this goes out. You win awards, and you're walking walk the red carpet. Is there an extension of the series? Do you have another idea? Obviously, the old the the evergreen question. But I mean, really, what what next? Yeah, we have a second season mapped out already. Mm-hmm. So we're all set for you, Netflix, Hulu, HBO. Um, and so hopefully this will pick up enough traction, but you know, that's not, I mean, that is, that is the pipe dream goals that it gets picked up. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like it is just a joy to make it and to put it out there in general. Um, yeah, we hope to see it around on the film festival circuit, which we're actively applying for right now. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing Chosen Fan with us and sharing your work and being just all around awesome. Oh, thanks you. Thanks you. (laughs) Kyle Casey Chu, everyone, also known as Panda Dulce. Make sure you check out ChosenFam.com. Thanks for tuning in to Progressive Voices Network. We have so much coming up at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I was just emailing John this morning. I was like, okay, I need to brace myself because the next three weeks 
are uh, insane. pretty insane, pretty packed. Next Friday, we've got Liz Weinstein, who is one of the co-creators of The Daily Show. Oh. I think many people don't know it. And co-founder um, of uh, Air America. Co-founder of Air America, so which was home to like big talk show heavyweights like yeah. Rachel Maddow, um, L. Franken, yeah. before he ran... As senator and then all that stuff happened but i hear he might be making a comeback um anyway to promote a little bit more what well, what do we have going on we also have oh gosh this one's going to be great the filmmakers for uh for sama yeah. which is a film that tells a story of one woman's um individual story of uh, surviving or being you know there at war-torn syria yeah. um so wad al Khatib, she will be here with Edward Watts. Yep. And we also have... Anise uh, Parker. Anise Parker, that's right. November Mayor 20th. Anise Parker, yeah. former Houston, first lesbian Houston. Yeah. Uh, Houston She's not the first lesbian mayor. in Houston. I think no, they, they had others. <laughs> the former, first, probably the second or third. First out lesbian mayor of Houston. Yeah. Um, I think of any major Who's now the US. president or CEO of Victory Fund. She'll, she'll be here to talk election season, the presidential election. I, I have no idea what she's going to need to say now with all the impeachment stuff happening. Uh, it's going to be even more interesting. So, yeah, It'll definitely be very come interesting. catch us that one. Um, Bob Sadawaki and Bob Sadawaki, uh, his husband, uh, Wally, Brewster, Wally Brewster, former uh, ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Um, That's right. October 31st. Yes, and Nancy Schwartzman, who is the director for Roll Red Roll, a film that focuses on the sexual assault case out of Ohio with the star football players and... Um, no arrests had been made, and they had this argument, boys will be boys, uh, uh, but uh, found cell video footage that had been circulating in social media, and it just kind of you know touches upon this thing where people normalize you know the, these these types of incidents, and so we'll get to hear how she was involved in ensuring that there was some accountability to what happened. Uh, and so much more. I mean, I mean, truly, like, there's so much more. You can go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for the full program list. We'll say goodbye, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.